Hope y'all are doing well. Good news. Good news. Right now you have 100% perfect attendance this year for church. So you started off on a good foot. Um, so that's something to be thankful for, something to be happy about. Um, we are at uh, 1 Peter this t- today. So uh, if you have a Bible, you can open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. I am really, 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 really happy to be in one book. I love the journey, and I thought it was great, and I, I believe that you should read the Bible again this year, all the way through, like last year. <clears throat> but I love the fact that we're finally in one book, and next week I actually know the verse I'm going to be starting with again after that, um, like when we're starting at verse 13 next week. So I'm excited about being back in a book. It's my favorite thing to pick a book and preach through it um, so that we all kind of at the end know that we know the full gist in as much as possible of what we've looked at. So if you have a Bible... You can open up to First Peter. Uh, <clears throat> sometimes my voice still cracks, even though I'm in my 40s. Um, I don't know why. So in First Peter, and you can, you can look in the table of contents if you're not sure where that is. It's all the way towards the back of the New Testament, even after Hebrews. So Hebrews, James, First Peter. Uh, I'm going to read the text that we're going to be looking at. Um, and then, actually, I, I want to spend some time in prayer first before, before we even uh, jump in. So... Uh, before we jump in, let, let me say this. The, the text that we're looking at um, may be familiar to you or not, but what's likely, if you spend any time in church at all, the truths that you're going to hear, you've probably in some angle heard before. Uh, and so because of that, um, it can accidentally maybe produce in you a little passivity to what you're going to hear. You can kind of say, well, you know, I'm familiar with this. And so what I want to do in, as we go into prayer time is, is do this. Say, um, I would love it if before we go into prayer that you would ask the Lord and say, God, some of these things might be familiar. Some of these things I might know. Uh, but I would, I would love it, Lord, if you would take these things that might be familiar and make them fresh again. Or give me a new angle on truths that I'm familiar with that cause me to be awestruck by who you are and what you've done. So... Um, Let's spend some time in prayer. I, I, I would ask you to do that right now. Take the next, I don't know, minute or so to do that. And, and maybe even pray for the person to your side. And then I'll, I'll pray for it. So close your eyes and, and start praying right now for that to happen. <clears throat> even though some of these things might be familiar. And then pray for the person to your side or behind you. And then I'll, I'll, I'll pray. Lord, you're so good to give us your word. Without it, we wouldn't know you. And we're thankful that you've given it to us. And by the Spirit, we can read your word and know what you want to say to us. And so I ask this morning as we look at uh, a new letter, a new book for us, 1 Peter. 
though some of the things that we've seen or will see um, are truths perhaps that we've studied in different ways. We've looked at different letters or different books of the Bible and, and heard some of these things. I pray that we wouldn't just approach them with a kind of a routine-based mindset that we've, we've heard this and we understand this. But instead, because you can, you can cause these possibly familiar truths to be just things that maybe even for the first time just blow us away. God, we're desperate for that. Each and every day, each and every Sunday, we're desperate for your presence. I am. And there's no way I can do anything in regard to preaching or anything at all, but especially in regard to preaching without your help. So would you come? Not only speak through me, but to me, make me a member of the congregation with everybody, a listener with everyone to what you're saying to all of us. Take these things, God, and cause us to live our lives as worshipers for you, for your glory. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have a Bible, I'm going to start in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 12 all the way through. Let us get the full kind of context, and then we'll, we'll work our way through. Starting in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. From the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, though now only for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you, do not though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things in which angels long to look. So, First Peter obviously is written... By Peter, it's written um, after a time where they were enjoying life together as a community. They were brand new believers because that's all there were, were brand new believers. 
Um, and they were learning how to live as Christians together. And they were enjoying this community to get together. Brand new Christians. All trying to understand what it means to be believers. Then all of that got interrupted. It got majorly interrupted. And persecution, massive persecution erupted on them by the Roman Empire. And because of this, they were dispersed. You see it right there in verse 1. Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who were elect exiles of the dispersion in. And then they dispersed themselves to all these various regions. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. So they, they go all over the place. Before that, they're enjoying this community. Figuring out, because everybody's trying to figure it out, because they're all new to this. How am I supposed to live as a Christian? Good thing we have a community. Good thing we're all together figuring this out. Boom, persecution hits. It's either stay there in community and get killed or disperse so that you can stay alive but lose community. And so as they're dispersed, as they're losing their community, they're pushed out to the margins. They're pushed out to the margins of society. They weren't really necessarily a central fixture of the culture in this first century, not at all. But for sure, um, they're pushed out to these margins out of community. In a lot of ways, that's the same for us. We, we live life now as Christians on the margins. We're not a central fixture of the culture. Maybe we were a couple hundred years ago. So in, in some ways, um, the lives of these people can parallel ours in some ways. They're having to live lives as believers on the margins. Now, on the margins isn't a bad thing. You still can, um, living a life as a believer on the margin of culture, society, etc., uh, make some pretty huge changes in, in, in life and in people's lives. And that's what they're trying to figure out. So the massive persecution erupts. They're dispersed all out. But one of the main things about this person that brought is now they're forced out of their community. They're forced out of this community that they had where they were trying to learn to live life as believers. And so since they're forced now to live life as Christians without this brand new community, Peter, among many other writers, decides to write a letter to them, explaining to them, hey, you don't have community anymore, so let me, let me write down to you what living life as a Christian looks like, specifically on the margin. How can, it, how can you live as a believer on the margin? And so uh, he's writing this letter to them, and as he's writing, there's kind of three huge dominant themes that he's, he's trying to uh, talk about in, in, the, in the letter. The first one is trying to encourage them. He's trying to encourage them in their persecution. We know that you're being persecuted because of your faith. We know, as we all would, that, that we, we don't like that. We find it disturbing. And so let me encourage you in the faith. Let me encourage you as a believer that this is the sovereign hand of God, that you shouldn't fret, that you should stand firm, that you should rejoice. Encourage them to continue. Uh, the second thing is <clears throat> they're trying to give them instruction on holy living. You'll see as we get into the kind of the middle of the book, they're going to address various topics that all Christians, in this particular time, they're talking about what it looks like to live under authority. I mean, the authority, the Roman government was, was persecuting them. And like, do we have to follow them? <laughs> Can we like rebel against them? And so they'll talk about authority. And then speaking of authority, let me talk about marriage. And they'll talk about marriage. So he, he has some different themes that he's going to talk through. And it's just talking about Christian living in the first century to that group of believers. So the first thing is to encourage them. The second thing is to talk about what it means to live as a believer in Christ um, in the first century. And the third thing is, and maybe one of the most dominant or the most important, is he's going to talk about why persecution happens. 
why persecution happens. I mean, that's, that's what caused the dispersion. And every one of us, whenever we're going through something tough, all of us at some point are going to say, why is this happening to me? And so he wants to talk about why it happens to Christians. And so we'll actually get into some of that today. There's a book called um, Everyday Church, which, uh, where we kind of got our theme from, written by Steve Timmis. And it's kind of a, uh, a, a, a brisk walk, if you could, through First Peter, but definitely talking about what it means to live life um, as, a, as a believer in Christ. And he has, he has this sentence that he'll say over and over throughout the book. Uh, it's, what we need to do as believers is try to figure out how to live everyday life with gospel intentionality. So every one of us in the mundane, in the day-to-day, in the parenting, in the husband and wife, in the job, in the driving to work, in whatever. I mean, all of us need to learn how to live life with gospel intentionality. We're the church every day. So we're not just the church on Sunday as we gather, but we're, we're the church every day. And so for them, we're the church every day on the margins. And that's very similar to us. In a lot of ways, um, it's, it's, it's similar. It's, we're not receiving the same kind of persecution that they are, um, but there's no dispersion. We get to actually still stay in our community, but we can still read these things and, and receive encouragement. We can still re- read these things and get good instruction on what it means to be uh, a person, of, of a Christian that, that needs to know how to live for Christ, holy living. And even in some measure, we will have suffering. We will have trials. We'll, we'll be tested in our faith. And he's going to give us instruction on, on why and even how to, how to how to go through that. So um, let's go ahead and, and, and look at uh, verse 1. And, and when we get to 3 through 12, it's kind of going to be the bulk of, of, the, of the sermon text. But um, I want to make sure we get verses 1 through 2. It's his greeting. Uh, and there's some important things in there. Peter. So all, all letters in the first century start with who's writing? Peter and an apostle. So the first thing is Peter, which if you were here last week, you kind of know some of the story, and perhaps you already know, Peter was the spokesperson of the disciples. Peter was uh, one of the, the top guys. He was one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Um, he had a horrible sin at the very end where he denied Christ. And for him, it was over. Like, I stink as a believer. It's not going to work out. I'm going back fishing. I'm clocking out. I'm done. And Jesus pursues him, does everything he can to help Peter see He's fully restored. That all takes place in John 21. You can listen to that from last week. So we're dealing with a man who was, he was, he was done. And now we have, after the restoration, he preaches this amazing sermon in Acts 2. He gets to preach the sermon where the Holy Spirit falls for the first time. That's a, that's a pretty big honor. Like 3,000 people get saved. People are talking everywhere in tongues. It's all crazy. And then after that, um, he goes on pr- for pretty much the first third of Acts, all the way into Acts chapter 9. He is the dominant figure of the book of Acts. And here he even writes a letter, First and Second Peter. Um, after 9 transitions, you see the, the conversion of Saul and, and definitely Saul Paul. He becomes the, the dominant figure of the rest of the book of Acts. Um, but Peter has always been a huge figure. And so that's who we're talking about. Peter, restoration, restored Peter, walked on water, big mouth, you know, ready, go, set Peter. Um, intentionally ready, go, set Peter. Uh, and then Peter, an apostle. And so this word apostle... Um, Though some tout that as a a designation of who they are in in the first century, wrongly, apostle applies to the first century. It applies to those who were with Christ, those who were a part of the 12 disciples. And it carried a ton of weight. So if they're an apostle, it meant I am one who was Jesus, I am one of the 12, and I have a lot of authority. So he puts that in the title 
to help these people know, I'm Peter, an apostle. So these words carry authority. These words are significant. Whenever you read these words, you can share them with your friends because these things are important. As a matter of fact, that's why as a couple centuries later, it became canon. It became part of the New Testament canon. Um, He's Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles. Interesting that he uses exiles. They weren't necessarily, he's trying to grab Old Testament language and pull it in uh, like the Exodus. Um, But he calls them the elect exiles. And I mean, this is, this is him talking about those who are chosen by God for salvation. Elect exiles in these particular regions. And then he talks about what being elected means. What does it mean? How did it happen? What does it mean? We're elected by God by his foreknowledge, according to the foreknowledge of God. And what's the purpose? Um, in the sanctification of the Spirit, we're, we're elected so that we will continue. We will continue to pursue holiness and be sanctified. And this is done by, for obedience to Jesus Christ, is done uh, for us in conjunction with the Spirit, obeying the commands of God and growing in our walk with Christ. So we have this kind of introduction, sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then we go into this verse 3. And verse 3 is going for us to kind of be the, the foundation of what we're going to be looking at today. First word, blessed be the God and Father and Lord of Jesus Christ. So he begins with the word blessed. He begins with starting with doxology, starting with worship. And so as he starts with worship, 3 through 12 is going to be all finding its foundation in worship. So everything that he's going to say is pointing you to be a worshiper. So the title here is worship. Worship at the margins is kind of the big idea. But in this text, we're looking at worship as the basis for the Christian life. So what's the reason? How am I going to live on the margins? How am I going to live out this Christian life? He starts with and points you to doxology. The way that you're going to adhere to these things, the way you're going to live out, the way you're going to understand suffering, the way that you're going to unbelievably be awestruck because of your salvation is worship. Blessed be the Father. It has an exclamation mark. Now, in the original, there, there were no punctuations, but I think that if Peter knew what an exclamation mark was, he probably would have done it. He would, exclamation, blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He wants to start out strong. Uh, it's the, the foundation for us to, to see that all that's going to follow needs to be couched in the idea of worship. He's telling that we are to live our lives completely as worshipers unto Jesus. Every act, every thought, every inclination, everything that you want to do is to be pointed towards doxology, pointed towards worship. And now, in the following verses, he tells us why. He tells us how. He tells us how we can do that and why we should do that. According to, blessed, why should we worship him? And verses 3 through 5 is this kind of first reason. You, you can see why we should be worshipers or worship as the basis for the Christian life. Why is it? Here it is. According to his great mercy. Now, great mercy in the Greek is like elios. This is uh, the same word in the Hebrew that he's trying to pull in. The, the hesed, the uninhibited, um, overflowing, couched in the person and who he is kind of God. Mercy overflowing to you because of that great mercy that he has divinely chosen to give to you for absolutely no reason whatsoever other than he's just unbelievably good. Because of that, he has caused us to be born again. This is regeneration. This is the new birth. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Our hope is not dead. Our hope is not feeble. Our hope is not shaky. It's a living hope. 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's because of the resurrection from the dead to an inheritance. We're going to talk about the inheritance in just a second. To an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded. God's guarding this. And even more so, it's apprehended through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed to you in the last time. So here we see one huge reason that we can live our lives as worshipers. The basis by which is because, number one, we should praise God or worship God or give blessing to God because of the fact that we have the new birth and a new inheritance. Praise God for the new birth. Praise God for the new inheritance. Let's, let's understand those two words a little bit more. Um, and again, back to the initial prayer. Back to the initial prayer I ask you to pray. Some of these truths might be things that you've heard. But hopefully, and hopefully you prayed, that these, new, these familiar truths are going to hit you in a new and fresh way. And they'll cause you to say, if I'm supposed to be worshiping God for the new birth, I'm supposed to be worshiping God for this inheritance, Lord, cause my mind to hear these things, not in a ho-hum, routine, yeah, I got this manner, but instead, make me awestruck. So the new birth, this is the change that God causes in us from being death, being dead to life. And the key cause, historically, is because of the resurrection. The key cause is the resurrection. You can see, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we know in John chapter 3, the wind blows, when one knows where it comes, and he causes us, and we're born again, Nick at night, that whole, <clears throat> I probably addressed this several times. If you don't know what I'm, it's in John 3. Just read John 3, 1 through 7. 8, 10, something like that. Well, it says the Holy Spirit gives new birth. Okay, so he does. But the foundation or the historic beginning of that is based on the resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus now is the cause, the central way that now that the Holy Spirit blows and he doesn't know where he comes and he causes you to be regenerated, he causes you to be born again, is because of the resurrection. The Holy Spirit can do that because of the resurrection. And so this new birth is the awakening in yours and my heart of being brought from death to life. And he's telling us that as God's elect, in verse 2, we have an absolute sure new birth because of Jesus' resurrection. It's as sure as Christ's resurrection. The new birth is as sure as the resurrection of Christ. And he's telling you that you should praise God. You should absolutely praise God because of this, because of this new birth. Interestingly enough, this new birth is because of his son. So because his son gave his own life and was resurrected, he brought back his own son to himself. This is where it gets awesome. This is where the fatherhood of God is like quite expansive. He gave us his own son. And when he gave us his own son, like it was his most treasured gift. And when the resurrection happened, he receives back his own son. And so the fatherhood is extended with his own son. And in that, he also receives many sons and daughters. So, like, the fatherhood just got like, I get my own son back, and then, whoa, look at all these sons and daughters I get too. Like, think of, we got, like, women pregnant, like, seven or eight women pregnant all the time at Remedy, in wedlock, inside of marriage, but, like, God's blessing. And so we have lots of people understanding, whew, got lots of people understanding fatherhood. And so as much as we can, like, understand this. God is experiencing this 
amazing blessing of fatherhood, all because of receiving back his new son, he gets to receive all of you who are in Christ as sons and daughters now. His own son and then a whole bunch more because of the new birth. We have received this new birth. Not only that, we received inheritance. An inheritance. The clay romane is how it's kind of pronounced. This is the idea of, of receiving something. This is the eternal blessedness that God gives to us. This is the, the, the sharing in of the eternal blessedness. The share that an individual receives from the benefactor. The benefactor is bestowing this amazing inheritance to you. Now, um, it's easy to maybe think about, like, you think of these amazingly rich people in, in the world. There's only like eight of them, right? They, they own everything. But like there's these eight people and you just think, man, somebody that's a grandkid born into that family, they don't have to do anything. Like they never have to cut grass at 14 like we did, right? They just, boom, they live in a mansion and they just have four-wheelers and bass boats and all kinds of stuff for the rest of their life. Like what would it be like? Infinitely more. This is the inheritance that we've received. All of us. Infinitely more if you're in Christ because you're a son or daughter you're invited into this amazing inheritance, kept, unfading, undefiled in heaven. So in addition to the new birth, we also receive a new inheritance. And I say new inheritance because the old inheritance was a huge bag of rotten eggs. I mean, it was terrible. The old inheritance was from our first parents that we inherited from Adam is a corrupt human nature that leads to death. That was the inheritance we received from our first dad. But praise God, we've been adopted into this new family. Not to, you know, down talk Adam. It's not like kick Adam while he's, you know, dead for thousands and thousands of years. But, like, he didn't give us a good inheritance. He gave us death forever. But adoption happened, and our new father, I mean, could you get any polar opposite from the trash inheritance we had from Adam to the amazing new inheritance we have now? Infinite life, eternal life forever is what our heavenly Father gives to us. An amazing, huge change in the inheritance we have. It's a glorious inheritance given to us because of Christ. And there's, there's four little descriptions even about this inheritance. I want you to see them right there. They won't be on the screen, but there's four little descriptions that he tells us right there in verse four. Imperishable. Um, nothing can happen to it. This world cannot destroy it. This world can be destroyed, but our inheritance never will. It's imperishable. It never, ever, 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 ever will go away. It's also undefiled. Nothing can defile it. Nothing can spoil it. Nothing can make it go bad. It's not like the nasty, rotten bananas that sit on our counter and turn brown, right? And you're like, oh, you smell, and now I have fruit flies forever. Like, it's, it's not that. It's undefiled. It can never, ever spoil. It cannot be destroyed. It can never spoil. And it's unfading. It does not wither. It does not dry up. It never goes away. It never fades out. And perhaps my favorite is that fourth one. He does these three little un-un-uns. And then he says, it's kept in heaven. The reason why those three things are true, that it's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, is because it's kept in heaven for you. Not only that, this is awesome. This is so awesome. It's kept in heaven, guarded by God. 
God himself is guarding, or in the Greek, shielding the inheritance, who by God's power are being guarded. Literally, your inheritance is being shielded or kept or guarded by the Father. There's no breaking in. There's no mission impossible (laughs) sneaking in through the ceiling and breaking in and getting it. It's done. It's like the Lord has guarded it and it's always there. I think that's absolutely amazing. Who is by God's power being guarded through faith for the salvation ready to be revealed to us in the last time. This means that these things right here, the new birth and the new inheritance are absolutely rock solid. Rock solid. Our inheritance is absolute because it's not even here. It's in, he- it's in heaven. God's salvation, his finished, perfect, and unchangeable salvation is being, inheritance is being kept for us by him, guarded by him in heaven. And I'm saying, Peter's saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. All that information is pointing you to not say, oh, okay, great. But instead say, whoa, I've got to worship him because of that. I've got to give him glory. So what does this mean? Let's take a little step back and and think a little bit deeper. When I say think a a bit deeper, I don't mean that it's not still relatively simple. It is simple. The new birth and this new inheritance. And I think even at this time of the year, sometimes it's easy to think about it, maybe a little easier. New life, new start, new year, you know, new creation, new man. I'm going to be a new person. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to do this. And like we, we all kind of know, oh, do again. I get a whole new fresh do over here at the beginning of the year because I really blew it like by January 15th last year. So like <laughs> we all understand that. And in and, and, and some way, that's, what, that's what's being offered, but infinitely better. Like infinitely, infinitely better. A new birth where we're pulled off this horrific inheritance that Adam had given us, death. And because of his amazing mercy, because of his great mercy, because you had done nothing at all. I had done nothing at all to ask for it or earn it. Or t- He just said, I want to give you this inheritance. I want to cause you to be born again. I want to bring you off this terrible death, this terrible path towards, put you on this amazing path towards life and give you an inheritance that's beyond what you could ever imagine, unfading, imperishable, and I'm keeping it for you. So in this step back, when we're thinking about all this, God's telling us that it's all apprehended through faith Living life on the margins then means we have, because of the new birth and the new inheritance, major reason, major reason to bless him. Major reason to live as worshipers. I would say major reason to live as out loud worshipers. Our conversations are sprinkled in with worship and praise to God. Whenever we talk to our family or friends, whenever we talk about things, we want to live as out loud worshipers. Can you believe what he has done? I was a horrible, terrible, like walking on the wrong path, and he, he didn't even have to. He just pulled me out of that, out of his sheer great mercy, and set me on a path towards Christ, gave me a new life, gave me a new inheritance. I can't help but live my life in a sentence by saying, whenever I start sentences like Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There should be, from us, 
living a life of out loud worshipers because of what he's done. So the, the, first, the first thing of worship as the basis for Christian life, it's, it's because of the new birth. It's because of the inheritance that he's given to us. And the next thing comes right here in verse 6. So he, he transitions at verse 6 from 6 to 9, and, he, and he's going to give us some different information. Because in this, that means in all that stuff I just said about the new birth and this inheritance that he's given you, in all that, you rejoice. You should rejoice. That's awesome. But back to what's going on with you, dispersed community. You're asking what's going on, and here Peter's going to address, I mean, this is the heart of the concern in writing. He wants to assure them of their hope that they have in Christ as they face trials, as this living hope he's told them they have. He wants to talk about the trials and the testing of their faith right now. I mean, that's pretty quick. Verse 6, he's already talking about the big idea of, what's, of why they've been dispersed. So in verse 6, he tells them, in this, you rejoice. I mean, this amazing inheritance and new birth. Though now, even, but right now, while you're living, that's coming, but right now, while you're living, if it's necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. The, the sovereign hand of the Lord sometimes brings trials to believers. And when it happens, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, there's testing, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. When that testing happens, the end result, or what should happen after it, is that may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. So here we are again, staying in the theme of blessedness, and he wants to help you know, you bless God because of this amazing gospel, and you bless God in the midst of trials and testing of your faith. To be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And rejoice with joy. I'm not sure what else you could rejoice with since the word joy is in rejoice. But you're supposed to rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Have you ever found yourself, have you ever found yourself when you're talking about God and what he's done for you, that you are literally rejoicing with joy that is inexpressible? I just can't even talk about it. It's unbelievable. It's at, it's at the height of my vocabulary all I can say is just, it's, it's just so good. <laughs> I can't come up with stuff. It's inexpressible. This is where he's pushing you in your worship. He's pushing you in your mental apprehensions and your vocabulary to get to the point where you are rejoicing with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. I don't even know what to say. It's just so high and lofty. And he's saying it in verses 6 through 9. When he's talking about trials and testing of our faith. So as we're looking at this, the second thing is this. We praise God because of the new birth inheritance. But also as we're living life on the margins as a Christian, we praise God with joyful worship through trials and tests. Joyful worship. Now, let me, let me confess. Be easy for you to say to me, hey, Fudd, that's easy for you. You'd be right. My life, on the whole, has not been filled with suffering. On the whole. Sure, I mean, I have things that are tough. But there are families in the church that have it like, Lord, how much can they stand? And why them and not me? There. There are people in the church and in the church at large that when I say, 
the testing and trials that you're going through, the Lord is saying, worship him in that. And they're like, you don't know. Okay, I'll say that's true. Perhaps not to the same experience that you've had. But, (laughs) this is Peter talking, not me. Who's definitely experienced more suffering than me. And has a, a leg to stand on, if you will, when he tells you, worship God through these trials. And he says that we are to praise God with joyful worship through trials. Praise God with joyful worship. We are going to face them. Some of you might, at least thus far in my experience, might have less difficult trials. And some of you might have highly difficult trials where your faith is pushed, it's tested far more than other people. That's, that's certainly the case in this short, short-lived church. It's the case in all believers. But we will face them. And Peter, in this little section, gives us three reasons why we should worship God in these tough times, in these trials, in these testings of our faith. Three unbelievable reasons why. Not on the screen. The first one is that he says, we should praise God in these, in these times because our hope in Christ points us beyond the trial. Our hope in Christ points us far beyond the trial. He's saying that trials basically last a short time in comparison to our hope with Christ and being with him. In a similar way, Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 4, 17. He says, if I can find it, I'm in 1 Corinthians is why. 2 Corinthians, Fud. <laughs> 2 Corinthians 4, 17. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And it's very, very easy for Paul to mean when he says slight momentary affliction to mean difficult in the rest of your life. Because he's comparing it to eternity. If you're just comparing it to other people, yes, you would absolutely use difficult and, and the rest of your life. But when he steps back and he says, in comparison to all eternity and the inexpressible joy that we'll have in heaven, you compare that to our lifetime, whether it's difficult or not difficult, what we have trials, he says those things are slight and momentary. In comparison to the eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that we'll have. And that's, that's the argument Peter's making. So he says, because of that, our hope in Christ points us far beyond the trial to heaven. So sure, absolutely, we're going to worship through this. Because this isn't our hope anyway. It's far beyond this. The second thing, the reason to worship is our hope in Christ is actually strengthened through the very suffering we're enduring. As we're going through, he says it in verse 7, where he says, so that the test of genuine savior faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire. This fires are talking about refining, the, the, the refining or the strengthening that you get through the suffering. He's saying, 
you would not be stronger in your faith had you not gone through it. But because you went through the suffering, you actually got stronger in your faith having gone through it. And you wouldn't have gotten stronger if you had not. So the second reason to praise God through it is, I don't like it. But on the other side, I'm going to be stronger. In other words, like, think of bench pressing. Maybe, like, I don't like the pain that it's going to cause, but I can only bench 50 pounds, and at the end of it, I can bench 400. I'll never bench 400, but, like, it's because of the pain that I got to experience this amazing blessing or the strengthening. And he said, if you had never gone through the pain, you wouldn't be stronger. You'd just be the same. And so we praise God because we know that we're actually going to be strengthened by the very suffering we're enduring. That's what he means by firing, fire or refining. And the next one is that suffering actually produces joy. Suffering produces, no, I'm not talking about happiness and, 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 and sadness. That's a roller coaster on your affections. I mean, we are emotional roller coasters. And I'm not down talking that like God made you emotional God made me emotional he made us as emotional beings and so we're not talking about suffering producing happiness and sadness it does but even when I'm happy I have joy but even when I'm sad I have joy suffering produces joy depending on my emotions they will range but the overall thing is I have joy suffering produces joy Jesus's coming will bring an end to all that suffering as well that's, that's the great news, that he is coming, and he is going to put an end to all this. And so because of that, it causes us, and that's why we say we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The whole idea of being, getting to the point of saying, I've just run out of words to say to talk about how awesome it is, is because he's been so faithful in the t- trials and tests that you just say, he's too good. He's just too good. He's <laughs> He's, he's just too good. I, I don't even, he's just too good. Inexpressible joy. And it's interesting as he's going through this, Peter kind of takes a little pause in verse 8 and says this one little sentence. And it just stood out to me. It's like, why, why, are, you, why are you doing that? Talking about suffering and precious and how we rejoice with joy. And right there in the middle he says, you know something that strikes me as interesting? Though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. What you, what you, why, why are you putting that there, Peter? I just found that to stick out. He's kind of pausing and reflecting on the love that the readers of the dispersion have for Jesus. And he's thinking, you've never even seen him and you love him. Uh, Peter had the mental pictures of which he could draw on about Jesus. Like, oh, I remember when he made that facial expression at this. When he brought the children and how he was just so happy with them. Or when he went through that, what his face... Like, so he had these mental pictures of whenever he would reflect on the love of Jesus, he, he could think about Jesus' face and say, man, I love him. And he's just kind of amazed by the fact that he's saying, you don't even, you've never seen him before and you love him. You've never even seen him and you believe in him. John chapter 20, verse 29, Jesus says, You believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. And this is just Peter kind of picking up on that point and saying, Yeah, for those 
that love me and believe in me without seeing, man, they're amazingly blessed. We haven't seen him. But here's where it's awesome. One day we will. One day, like Peter, we will have the mental pictures of his face to reflect on and think, I saw his face whenever I was giving him glory and worship. And that was awesome. We will have that one day. And here's something that's even better. Even though you've never seen him, you already know him. You already know him. And Peter's just kind of thinking, and he's thinking, this is amazing. You've never seen him and you love him. You've never seen him and you believe. Blessed are you who have not seen and believed. And one day you will. And you already do know him. I think that that gives us great confidence to worship him through trials and the testing of our faith. We already love him, even though we've never seen him. And then, he goes into verse 10. Um, Edmund Clowney, no relation to Jadavian, says this. Um, he says, as he's transitioning from verse 9 to verse 10, some people who are Gamecock fans know what I'm saying. Sufferings, now glories to follow. Sufferings now, glories to follow. The sequence of our lives follows the sequence of Christ's life. He suffered first, and then he entered into glory. So must we. So he's talking about sufferings, and then he puts it into the glories that we'll receive one day. And then he goes into verse 10, um, making comments. But as we get into verse 10, we're talking about the salvation. And this, this is... This is interesting language. He says, Peter says, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Notice the language that he uses. Notice what he says they do. And remember what we saw the angels are doing. The angels are over here just looking and longing and like, ah, that's the gospel. And I just stare at it and amazed by this gospel. That's on it's kind of on the one side bookshelf, if you will. On the bookshelf, there's, there's one side. But over here on the other side, I don't think accidentally, angels on one side, who do we have on the other side? The prophets. And what are they doing? Searching and inquiring carefully. Inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating that the predicted sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories. So you have, you have the cross standing at the central point of all human history. You've got the prophets on this side and the, the angels on this side. And the prophets are on this side staring at that, looking forward. And they're like, when's it going to come? Trying to figure it out. As it says that they are in verse, uh, in verse 10, they're looking at it and they're trying to search and inquire carefully. Inquiring, who's the person? When's the time? When's the Spirit of Christ going to indicate through us, through the writings, that we can finally see this coming Messiah? And then you have the angels on this side where it's happened longing to look at it longer. Interesting. Very interesting. This is what what he points us to when he talks about the prophets. The prophets, the job of the prophets, they were tasked in the Old Testament with telling the people about the coming promises of God. God's promised a Messiah. 
He promised it all the way back in Genesis, the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3, I think it's 16. I'm going to strike the heel and I'm going to kill him. I'm going to stomp the head of the serpent. He's done. He's going to get a big boot to his neck. Like that's the very first time where he's saying, Jesus is going to win it all. And all throughout the entire Old Testament, over and over and over, the Old Testament prophets are saying, when's it coming? When's it they're, they're writing down these promises of God and how they're going to be fulfilled over and over. And all of these promises that are written in the Old Testament are pointing us to glory. They're pointing us to glory. The prophets have been pointing people to new creation. They're pointing people to God's making new of all things. They're pointing people to whenever all the darkness is gone, whenever the Messiah comes and restores all things. And they're looking for it. They know it's coming. They're like, when's it coming? Searching, inquiring. The prophets were watching. The prophets were waiting for Jesus. They're looking for him. They're wondering when he's going to come. And he wants them to know that the sufferings of Christ is kind of the, Peter uses this phrase, that it's suffering than glory, suffering than glory. And then he makes the statement that they weren't, the prophets weren't, they weren't serving themselves. Instead, they were serving the children of the diaspora. They were serving the children of the people of the dispersion. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, the prophets, as they're looking intently, but you, children of the dispersion, and the things that have now been announced to you through those, through those prophets who preach the good news. As they preach the good news, they were actually serving you because all they've been doing is telling you, here's the promises, here's the promises, here's the promises, here's the promises. And now before your very eyes, you've seen those promises kept. And these aren't like second class kind of bad promises, like I promise I'll take out the trash, you know, something easy. Like this is, I promise you, everything's going to be restored. Boom, it's done at the cross. And they were serving you. This, I mean, it's amazing. And they were doing it by telling them and preaching to them the gospel, the good news by the Holy Spirit. They were announcing the gospel. So here's the third reason why we praise. As we're looking at that section, here's the third reason why we praise God. We praise him for the new birth and the inheritance. We praise him because he is the one that brings us through the tough trials. And we praise God with all filled worship because God's promises of hope are fulfilled in Christ. And we're saying when God makes promises, he makes huge promises and he keeps them. And the text is telling us and pointing us to say, you praise God because he makes huge promises like saving you from your soul, saving you from eternal damnation, and putting you on a path towards heaven forever, and he keeps it. And all of it was written down by the prophets. All of it. And boom, kept at the cross. That's great reason. Great reason to worship. The prophets were, in a way, beacons of this announcement. They were the light shining they were given this trustworthy, steadfast nature of God saying, God keeps promises. And he did it by giving us his son. The prophets were not just at the, the, the crux of it all trying to tell you to be moral. They made moral statements. Stop doing this, start doing this. But the foundation of all the things that they were saying is they were predicting the suffering and the subsequent glory of the Messiah. 
They were saying Jesus is the point of all the prophecy. Jesus is the goal of all of human history. His sufferings are the one that will bring glory and salvation to all man to give back glory to Jesus. So the prophets are speaking of him. But just like God, he's speaking through his prophets to us. That messes with your mind almost. Like, wow, you are unbelievable. You keep your promises, and your promises are awesome. And then he ends by saying, I mean, why do you say this, Peter? Things to which angels long to look. I mean, it would make sense just to hit sent from heavenly things, period. That's there. And I've already told you why. He puts that there, saying that angels long to look, trying to help you see that you in the dispersion and us in 2015, 16, sorry, we're all surrounded by, on both sides of human history, people that are staring at this great gospel that perhaps you've accidentally become too familiar with. And they're pretty jazzed about it. They're looking at it and they're like, that's awesome. And we're sometimes like, "Mm, I've heard it a lot. They're longing. Grudem says they have a, the angels have a holy curiosity to watch and delight in the glories of Christ's kingdom as they find ever fuller realization that the lives of individual Christians are being brought throughout all the church. I read that wrong, but basically they have, they have a holy curiosity to continue to watch and delight in what God's doing. That's why they long to look. So I want you to think about this last little phrase and really all of 10 through 12, think of it this way. Next time you are living your life as a believer, living on the margins, trying to figure out what it means to be a believer in everyday life and everyday church, and you think, this just feels boring sometimes or lifeless or dry or I just don't feel it like it. I used to feel it. It's just not doing it for me right now. I mean, this is, this is maybe one of the top conversations I have as a pastor with people. Whenever they aren't, you know, clicking on all cylinders. Just not feeling it right now. It's dry, just dry spell, boring, lifeless. I think that the problem is, is because we are allowing ourselves unlike the prophets and angels unlike them to be amazed and enthralled enthralled by lesser stories instead of looking at the great story of which they never grow weary staring at never grow weary looking at and so our dry spells or our lifeless or our don't feel it is because we're not we're not we're looking at the wrong story Grudem says it this way. This is so good. Angels who see ultimate reality from God's perspective. So if there is a being that can see ultimate reality from God's perspective, we should probably look at what they're doing and learn from that. That's what angels can do. And what are they doing? They are longing to look at the gospel. Not a lesser story, but the greater story. He says, angels who see ultimate reality from God's perspective find Christians to be the objects of intense interest. Intense interest. Know this. Angels can't get saved. Angels can never get saved. There's fallen angels. They can't get saved. Humans get saved. That's it. 
If an angel falls, they're done. They're the devil and they're gone. And it's all his third of his angels. Once an angel falls, that's it. When man falls, we can get saved. And they find that captivating. But there's the ones that have never fallen, who have not sinned, who have never received great mercy. They've never received great mercy. We have received, they've never sinned. Why would they need to have great mercy? Why would they need to have Hesed just thrown all over them? They wouldn't. And so they look at this and they're like, they're so fallen. They didn't deserve any of this. And you're just giving them unbelievable mercy. They never grow weary. He says they see ultimate reality. They find Christians to be the objects of intense interest because the angels know that these struggling believers are actually the recipients of God's greatest blessing and honor, we are honored participants in a great drama at the focal point of human history. <laughs> so the lifelessness, the stagnation, the dryness, the boring language, that's not the case for the prophets and the, and the angels and it shouldn't be the case for us. We've got to find ourselves worshiping because of the great story and not settling and being awestruck with lesser stories. And that's unbelievable reason to worship, that he has given us a new birth, a new inheritance. He sees us through all the trials and testing of our faith. He is a big promiser and a big promise keeper. And it results in our salvation. So let's join the prophets and the angels and longingly look and inquire and search and stare into this amazing gospel and preach it to ourselves daily the way the prophets preached it to find ourselves daily enthralled and amazed by the good news of the gospel and that results in living lives as out loud worshipers let's all stand we're going to close in singing and worship and worship literally out loud with song because he's done this for us let's pray God thank you so much for your love and your mercy God I pray for us all that we would live our lives as out loud worshipers because you have given us new birth you have given us an inheritance you see us through the, the trials and the testing of our faith and we're actually even stronger after it and God, you make promises, you always keep them. So you deserve all the glory and honor and praise. Be with us now as we worship you out loud in this room and out loud as we leave this room with our lives. Praise in Jesus' name.